from serving his country to serving hungry customers, today's guest took his Ivy League education to make sure a well-loved Hanover restaurant could continue feeding its community. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Matt, you know what I love? What do you love? Breakfast. Oh, <laughs> so versatile, so yummy. I know. So, um, I during the week because I'm I tend to you know get up early, have my little routine. I I need a little like I always need protein, always, always. Like if I have an English muffin with with like butter, no, I'm I'm dead by like nine o'clock. But if I put peanut butter on it, it's like a whole other world. So that's my week long. That's my weekly breakfast or the 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 weekday breakfast. Rather. I hope you make more of a splash on the weekend. I, I do mean, really. I do. Oh, I love yeah. breakfast. I have an English muffin. Right. I'm a breakfast guy. I love a good English muffin. That's not where I'm going. No, 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 no. So the weekend though is like, well, Saturday is usually like the eggs and bacon and, and all of that other stuff day. Right. And then Sunday, my wife makes pancakes for the kids and I get to participate too. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I'm, if I, I'm but I love that, you know, that breakfast is one of those meals where you can get everyone involved. Yeah. So I, and, Breakfast has always been like that real true family meal for me. Like mm-hmm. growing up, my grandfather liked to cook. And cool. I remember he would make, you know, Sunday brunch and we'd mm. go over and he'd make the cheesiest omelets you've ever yes. had. Um, ham that was cooked in maple syrup, no. and hash browns and all this, you know, I mean, really a heart attack on a plate. But yeah. it just... It, Anytime I have like a breakfast like that, it just takes me back mm-hmm. to my grandfather cooking in the kitchen. Yeah. And then, you know, just this past weekend, I know on the weekends I tend to cook, you know, the family at least, you know, one big breakfast like on Sunday. Yeah. And this past Sunday, um, we got everyone involved. And it was so nice. We're all in the kitchen together. And, you know, my oldest is making the pancakes. Oh, nice. I'm doing the eggs. My youngest is cutting up the fruit. Mm-hmm. My wife is working on and so but you know, one it made it so much easier on me, but two, you know, you, you come together and everyone's kind of proud because they had that moment of the meal. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I just love it because even my youngest, I can safely have participate Yeah, because there's simple things that you right, can make. Right. Us too lately with the, you know, even like making the pancake batter, right? Mm-hmm. Both kids, of course, try to help and one gets knocked off the stool or whatever, <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, but they, you know, we give them a job to do of some kind. And, it's and not it breakfast unless there's tears involved. Right. <laughs> tears and flying flour and all that mm, other stuff. So. Just add that la- oh, <laughs> added man. flavor. Well, um, I think our, uh, our guest this week will have something to say about breakfast for sure, if not uh, if not more. So our guest this week is Jarrett Burke, owner of Lou's Restaurant and Bakery in Hanover, New Hampshire. Jarrett took a circuitous but adventurous path to restaurant entrepreneurship. After high school, he attended the U.S. Naval Academy, was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Marines, and became a helicopter pilot, then later a product manager for Military Aviation Simulator Systems. After nearly 11 years in uniform, Jarrett left a career focused on military aviation to attend the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Since taking over the iconic Lou's restaurant, Jarrett has founded and led several small businesses in the food space and continues to work with the entrepreneurs and in the Dartmouth and Hanover community. Jarrett serves on several boards and is deeply involved with his community. Jarrett, welcome. 
Thank you. We're excited to have you. Yeah. So um, I think there's lots to get to, obviously, because of your circuitous route and all of the uh, everything that you've done over your your career, both military and civilian so far. Um, I do love the their circuitous route, as I keep saying, um, you know, to restaurant ownership. And I wonder first, though, kind of backing up a little bit, why the Naval Academy and the military? And was it a love for aviation or was there something else that led you there? Yeah. So the uh, I would say the end wasn't even in sight when I when I started thinking about this. <laughs> Isn't that kind um, of the case when we're that age and right. we're making those decisions? We don't think about the end. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I started kind of thinking about this when I was pretty young, you know, early teens, 13 or 14 years old and um, learned about the service academies and, and it became uh, just a goal for me, you know, to try and get there. It's this, you know, great institution, great, great college. Mm-hmm. Um, it's free. You get a good job afterwards and, um, and it can lead, it can open up all these doors. So it, it was one of these things that just became a goal that I, I just kept working towards. And, um, I wasn't a great student. Um, you know, I wasn't a, a star athlete or anything like that, but I, I learned that to gain admission, you have to be well-rounded. You have to be, you know, involved in your community and you should have a job and you should be an athlete and be a leader on the field um, get good grades, do well on your, your, you know, uh, standardized tests and, and it, it gives you a shot. And that's mm. what I did. So I, I, I just kept working towards it somehow got accepted. And, and, <laughs> and I remember this moment when I, I, you know, my parents dropped me off and I'm walking up the stairs at, at alumni hall, which is, you know, uh, where they, they, uh, induct you. They, you know, they sure. give you all your uniforms and you sign all your papers and get your vaccines and all this other stuff. And so I'm walking up the stairs about to, you know, wave to my parents for the last time for a couple months. And, um, I kind of, you know, I looked at them, I, I turned, I looked at the door and I'm like, oh crap. What am I about to get myself into? And, uh, I mean, it was the best decision I could have made. I, I had a blast and, um, and, uh, you know, the career that I, the route that I took, I, I never could have predicted, but, um, I, I really had a good time and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did it and, and went that way. And what did you take away from your military experience. I mean, you're a long time in the military. Um, and for some that transition from military life to civilian life can be hard. Yeah. Um, what was that transition like for you and what skills and lessons did you take from your military experience that has helped propel you to where you are today? Yeah. So, so I think you hit on a really important uh, point there of that transition and it is difficult. You know, you, you, especially, uh, somebody, who is either right at a high school or, you know, right at a college, you, you don't have a whole lot of life experience, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, health insurance, right? Like it's not something you ever think about as, you know, when you're in the military, but then it's really important when, when you have a family and, and now you have to choose a plan and understand what a deductible is and all these other things. And, and, you know, the list of kind of topics like that is very long. Um, and so you spend your whole career focusing on, your profession and your weapon system and all these things. And then all of a sudden now you have to make these really, really important choices, um, uh, about how you're going to live your life as a civilian. And so I was fortunate in that I spent a bunch of time in the fleet and, you know, did a bunch of deployments. And then I kind of had this, um, you know, semi-civilian type of job, as, mm. as you mentioned, uh, being a product manager. So I, I worked in the acquisitions workforce um, I wasn't really sure which way I was going to go, if I was going to stay in or if I was going to get out. And, and this kind of gave me an opportunity to take a step back, um, have kind of a desk job and evaluate my options 
and prepare for this transition uh, to get out. And, and a lot of people don't have that opportunity. Right. A lot of people go, you know, from your, your on deployment and you're, you know, really in it to a few months later, now you're wearing regular clothes and, and trying to navigate this kind of difficult transition. So I think I was really fortunate in that I had this time to figure things out, decide which path I was going to take. And, you know, I, as you mentioned, I went to the tuck school business. So I realized that I didn't have a lot of these skills and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so applying to grad school for me and using my GI bill gave me this opportunity to take some time, you know, get it, get another degree, get an advanced degree, figure out, you know, the functions that I liked. So if I, you know, liked finance or operations or mm. what, you know, marketing, figure out what kind of company I wanted to go to, um, and, and really test a lot of things out and see a lot of things before I had to make one of these decisions. So I, I think, you know, I like the path that I took. I, I realized that, it, that not everybody has those options. And, um, and I, you know, I think I got, I got lucky in, in the way that, that it worked out for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a, you sure did. I think. So yeah. you earn your MBA, right? Yep. And up from Tuck, I mean, not too shabby. Um, so what did you take away from Tuck and where, how did that launch you into this, uh, into the direction you went? Right. Right. So you know, one of the things I kind of figured out was the thing that the, the aspects of a job that bring me happiness. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was a book, there's a, a guy named Daniel Pink, who's written a, a bunch of books on sales and, and, uh, uh fulfillment and, and things like that. And, and one of the, the things he wrote about was, uh, these kind of three legs of the stool, which is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So autonomy is, uh, you know, not just kind of coming and going as you please, but autonomy over, you know, uh, being able to make decisions, right. Um, having, having the freedom and, uh, the responsibility to, to make decisions, right. Um, mastery is, you know, being the master at your craft, right. Understanding your job, being really good at it, getting to the point where you're in flow, you know, you really know what you're doing. And then purpose is not, you know, running a nonprofit, but it's, believing in what you're doing and feeling good about what you do when you go to work. And so I realized when I was doing my MBA that I needed those, those things. I needed autonomy. I needed mastery and I needed purpose. I also realized that I liked doing a lot of different things throughout the day. I, I can't sit in, in a desk and just work on one project for an extended period of time. I need to, I need to be doing different things and, and, um, you know, have variety in my day or else I get, I get bored. I just, it's my ADD or, or whatever. <laughs> and so, so I realized that. I love um, when other people with ADD come into the, <laughs> to the podcast. It makes me feel so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I realized that, that going, you know, being a finance person or, um, you know, going to work for a big business, I, I wouldn't get mm -hmm. those things. And small business was really kind of the direction that I wanted to go. And so going into, I did an internship. Um, I, I worked for New Balance down in, in Boston, which was awesome. I had a blast, but I realized that I, I, I didn't want to work for a big company. I wanted to work in a small company and, and really I wanted to run a company. And um, so as I went into my second year, I started thinking about how do I do this? How do I find a company where, you know, the owners want to retire, where maybe they don't have a succession plan, um, how do I find a company that's going to survive a transition like this, where you have a kind of a young person who's coming in and taking over? Um, and so I, I embarked on this search process and this process of figuring out how I can get this done. And um, 
and and you know basically what I realized was I needed a company that was a certain size. It had to make enough money to to make sense for it to actually change hands, but not too big where private equity and some of these other um, you know uh, there were other people looking at it. Right. Um, and there were certain types of companies, right? Um, you know, it couldn't be a key man type of business where everything revolves around the owner. It had to be something that had a, you know, big enough staff and had mm. a brand and, um, and, and again, could survive this type of transition. So I started looking for companies um, uh, that fit this kind of bill. I, I realized quickly that that's hard to find them. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, I was talking with a buddy who was Tuck grad and he had bought a company and, and, and we were actually talking with a, a, another friend. It was like this uh, mixer type of event at, uh, at Tuck. And so this other friend was, he happened to be an accountant and his, uh, his spouse was, uh, was a, a Tuck grad. And so he asked me, he's like, so, you know, are you, are you talking to any accountants? And I'm like, you know, I do my own taxes. Like I, I don't have any money. Like I'm, <laughs> you know, it's like, why would I be talking to any accountants? He's like, no, no, no. Like accountants know everything that's going on. Like a small, you know, accountants in the, in this region that do small business accounting, they know the ins and outs of every business yeah, in the true, upper man. Valley. Yeah. And I was like, man, that is brilliant. So, uh, like I think later that night I, I sent him an email and said, Hey, can you, can you connect me? And, and he connected me with one of the partners at, uh, at his accounting firm, Gallagher Flynn. And, um, so I started talking to one of the partners there and, and kind of explained what I was looking for. And within a few weeks, I, you know, I met with him and, uh, this partner and he, he kind of had a list of different companies that he felt that in the next five years or so we're going to transition. And, and that's what really started me on this path of, you know, looking at different companies and doing due diligence and, 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 uh, kind of getting in, into this position where, um, I'm now in a, in a, uh, in the position of this entrepreneurship through acquisition, mm. um, and, and trying to figure out kind of which company I'm going to go after. So and how then, did you settle on a restaurant? Say, right. Right. The, one of the right. riskiest, you know, yeah. industries that there is, um, what attracted to it? Was it the industry you're attracted to or was it the specific restaurant? Yeah. So, so one, I, I, you know, I think restaurants have this reputation of being very risky mm -hmm. and, um, I actually think that that is a little bit misplaced. Um, when you look at restaurants um, and compare them to other startups, other new businesses, the failure rate is actually about the same. So, um, you know, it restaurants are very visible. Mm -hmm. um, they're, it's very personal, right? You go to restaurants, you 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 sit there, you experience the business, and then when they go out of business, you feel that too, right? right. There's an empty storefront. So, I think there's this perception that businesses are very risky, and, and and they're way more risky than other businesses. But the reality is that when you compare them to other startups, it's about the same uh, in terms of failure rate. So, um, kind of to step back now. I grew up around the restaurant industry. My um, my my parents were investors in my uncle's restaurants, uh, and he had uh, multiple restaurants in New York City. So I was kind of around it, you know, from the time I was a little kid, um, and so I knew basically what it was about. I, you know, I wasn't I wasn't washing dishes in my in my uncle's restaurant, but but I, again, I was kind of around it and, and enough to know that it was a tough business, and um, and I I also knew enough from my MBA and, and, uh, you know, just kind of life experience to see that lose was not your common restaurant. Um, phenomenal location, great brand, uh, 70 plus years of, uh, you know, of tenure. And it was also diversified. So it was a restaurant, it's a bakery, it's a catering company. 
And when I got a chance to look at some of the financials and and learn more about the business, I realized again that this is not your typical restaurant, and it's um, it's a really strong little business, um, and uh, it's profitable, and you, you know from from every uh, kind of estimate or every every uh, measure, it it was a really good acquisition. Um, so even though I was looking at a bunch of different businesses and I was kind of open to, to, uh, trying to acquire, uh, you know, many different types of business, uh, this was a really special one. And, um, uh, and again, I, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times that I got lucky and, and I think I did. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, the timing was just great and the connections that I made were, um, really fortunate and, um, I'm so fortunate to, to, um, to be able to be in the position to, you know, have bought lose and, and, and still, still be running it today, you know, <laughs> yeah. made it through the pandemic and, and everything else. Yeah. We'll get to the pandemic piece in a second, but I want to, I want you to touch a little bit on the history. So, um, I was reading the history of, of the restaurant it was Lou Brissette that started lose, um, yep. a veteran himself. Yep. Um, and there was been a, a number of owners, um, since then, but sort of strategically passed on, um, through, through the years. Um, is there, is there more history to that? And, and, um, who were the, the former owners and, and what's your relationship and kind of connection to them if there is one. Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, you mentioned Lou, uh, mm-hmm. Lou Brissett. So Lou graduated from Hanover High School in 1938, I believe, and then um, joined the Marine Corps. And so this was pre-World War II. They joined the Marine Corps. He was in the Marine Corps for, I think, three years and uh, and made the rank of private first class, which is uh, not very high <laughs> when, uh, you know, by the time uh, the, the Pearl, that Pearl Harbor was, uh, was bombed. So um, he's a private first class. Pearl Harbor gets bombed very, very quickly, um, comes up in the ranks. And uh, when he got out of the Marine Corps in, in 1945, I believe, he was a master sergeant. So, you know, second from the top in terms of uh, the enlisted ranks. And he had fought on every island in the Pacific theater. So very, very highly decorated and, um, you know, a a, a true hero. Mm. So um, he gets out of the Marine Corps in 1945, comes back to Hanover. And in 1947, he uh, opens Luz. So there was a a restaurant there that uh, was failing. And and so he took it over, named it after himself and opened this (laughs) breakfast place. And uh, he ran it for 37 years and then um, sold it to a, a Dartmouth grad named Bob Watson, who um, ran it for about 10 years. And then Bob sold it to Toby and Patty Freed, mm. whom I bought it from, and they ran it for 27 years. Wow. So in 75 years, I'm only the fourth owner, which is pretty impressive. It is pretty impressive. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of tenure. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and, and so Toby and Patty bought it in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, Toby was actually an engineer. He was a mechanical engineer and, uh, wasn't really enjoying being an engineer. Um, <laughs> and he was also kind of like a hobby baker. So he went, he went to pastry school and, um, and, you know, baking was really his passion. And so he's the one who, who really brought the bakery side of Lou's restaurant and bakery to, to what it is today. And, um, and so I bought it from Toby and Patty. Uh, Toby worked in the restaurant, uh, with me for about three months after, oh, wow. yeah, after the transition. So, and, and he's still actually, he's still working for us today. He took a little break and he came <laughs> back and now, and now he bakes, uh, uh, with us just kind of for fun. Um, but it's, it's great to have him around and, and, uh, and, you know, they're, they're really good partners. This was, nice. um, you know, this, this was certainly not a, uh, 
uh, adversarial type of like uh, acquisition takeover. takeover. Yeah. 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 yeah, it was. It was very. I mean, even through the like due diligence process and everything, it was great. really friendly and and um, it was a it was a great experience and good. Um, good. Uh, you know nice to to uh, take over a business like this from mm-hmm. a good family who wants to see the business succeed. Yeah, you know, they were they were absolutely on my side. Um, you know, through the transition and then after. And, and that really helped to, to get us to where we are today. That's awesome. And you, you bought the business with your wife. Yep. Yep. And did you also, I think it was just before the pandemic, then we're getting into the pandemic story here. Okay. Um, but just before the pandemic also bought the building that Lewis yeah. is in. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that might've helped us through the pandemic a little bit. Huh? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so when we were, um, Toby and Patty owned that, the condo um, yes. that, the, that the restaurant is in. And so I, I didn't, you know, when I, that's another part of this is I bought this business with like basically no money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's doable. You don't have to be, you don't have to be rich to, mm-hmm. uh, to acquire a business. Um, you know, a lot of SBA debt. Um, so there was some <laughs> seller debt involved yep. as well. And then I, I was able to raise just, you know, to get me over the line, some friends and family money as well. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I didn't have the money to buy the building at first, but, um, in, in that first kind of year and a half, I was saving up and then, um, did another SBA loan, something called the 504 program mm-hmm. to buy the building that the, the business is actually located in. And I was able to get some, uh, some very cheap debt from the, uh, Home Loan Bank of Boston and Ledger Bank. And, um, and I was able to purchase the building as well, which, which is great for the long term, you know, yes. and that again, most restaurants are um, asset light um, mm-hmm. on their balance sheet, right? They they rent, they yeah. you know they do everything they can to keep uh, their assets as little as they can because it's easy to kind of come into a business that way. Um, but that hurts, I think, many of them in the long run mm-hmm. because you know rents are just they go up every year. Yeah, and so if you own your real estate, it's kind of a different business. And you know the McDonald's model is is uh, is kind of this way, right? McDonald's yeah. is a real estate company that sells hamburgers. <laughs> and, um, and so by buying the building, you know, in terms of long-term stability, it really helps. Nice. We'll be right back. Sky Terra is one of the nation's top 50 Microsoft cloud solutions provider, and we're proud to be headquartered right here in New Hampshire. Please visit us at www.skyterratech.com to see how we help companies with their IT needs so they can concentrate on their business. All right, we're back with Jared Burke, owner of Lou's Restaurant Bakery. So you have this business with 70-year history. What, how do you balance the pressure to keep delivering on the reputation while also moving it forward and perhaps putting your own stamp on it? Did you feel that pressure and, 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 and how have you approached that? Yeah, I, I think, uh, that's a great question and it's, it's a balance. I, you, you, uh, you know, that's the perfect word. And I think, uh, I think you have to do things slowly. <laughs> you have to be, uh, deliberate about some of the decisions you make. And there are little things that you can do that kind of make it your own and, and, um, you know, just, just, uh, updating the menu and, and adding new things and, and, you know, little kind of updates that we made to the interior were, uh, were little, little improvements that we could make while still keeping, you know, the, the culture and the, and the feeling of being in lose. But, um, you know, you hit the nail on the head is like, we, we've got this kind of legacy business and this legacy client base who, you know, people who have been going to lose for 20, 30, 40 years who have an expectation of, you know, what they want to see and what they're used to. But then also we've got, you know, what, 1300 or 
however many the the, the Dartmouth freshman classes that come in every <laughs> year, and and you know their expectation is for us to be kind of you know smoothie bowls and you know all these other things that are that are a little bit uh, you know more fresh. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be able to balance that. And, and, and it is a struggle. Um, you know, the menu is, is super important at any restaurant of, you know, what you have on there and how you, how you position it and where you put things on the menu and how things are priced. And, uh, and it's tough for us because we have to have eggs and bacon and toast. Um, you know, even though we want to do things that are a lot more exciting and fun and, and no, we'll kind of make a splash, right? There, there's only downside risk in eggs and bacon and toast. You, you know, you, you can't you, you can't win there, right? You can you can mess it up, but you, you're never gonna like knock it out of the park right. with eggs and bacon and toast. But um, you know, we've got some things on the menu that are just awesome, and uh, and you have to be able to kind of do both there, and uh, and it's fun. You know, it's a little bit of a challenge, but so what did you bring to it? So um, what have you introduced into this? <laughs> um, so we, you know, we did some updates to the interior kind of in the first, uh, in the first year or so just, you know, painted, uh, updated, updated some things there, uh, just to make it look a little, a little cleaner and, and, uh, and newer, uh, definitely brought some things onto the menu. So, um, you know, and, and I try and bring things from my past. So, so, uh, one of the first things we did was we brought a, a breakfast burrito onto the menu and, and <laughs> there was a place at the, at the weapons and tactics course in, uh, in Yuma, Arizona. Um, called the Afterburner, and they had these awesome breakfast burritos. And uh, and one of our bakers is from Yuma, so we called it the the Yuma breakfast burrito. And you know, tried to bring in some of those flavors. Um, but it's it's one of these things that you know we're we're constantly making these little improvements. Um, a lot of it is things that the customer doesn't see. So you know, kitchen efficiency and making the kitchen kind of easier and nicer to work in. Um, you know, kind of all these behind the scenes things, upgrading refrigeration, upgrading mm-hmm. the air conditioning system. There's, there's, we've made a lot of investments into the, into the building and into the business that again, the customer doesn't really see or feel, but, um, there are long-term investments that we know are, are going to be good for the business. And just to get my timeline straight, when did you acquire the business? In July of 2018. So 2018, you've got this <laughs> business, you're up, you're running, Ta-da. you're moving. So... What I mean, every business has a pandemic story about <laughs> what they faced, but the restaurant industry, whew, they got hit. Yeah. So what was that like for you and how did you lead your business through that? Sure. So, um, you know, as a, as a helicopter pilot, um, contingency, uh, planning and readiness is like, it's what you do. <laughs> Number That's one. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you know, you lose an engine, you lose your tail rotor, what, what do you do? And, and you practice these things. And, and, um, I've, I've heard it called stress inoculation, right. Where you put yourself in these really stressful situations, you know, really every flight, especially as you're coming up is a test. It's every flight's a check ride. And so, um, you're constantly being tested. And, um, so it gives you this calm in situations that are really stressful and, um, you know, others may have a harder time with. And so I actually felt really comfortable as we were, as we were going into the pandemic, because, um, it, it kind of was like, okay, there's a ton of pressure. We have to get this right. But, um, I, I almost felt like I'd been there before because, you know, I'd been to Afghanistan, uh, I've been on, a couple deployments, uh, a couple combat deployments. And so I was like used to the stress and it was almost, it, it was almost comforting to have, <laughs> to, yeah. to be back in this sure. like contingency sure. type of situation. So, um, 
you know, as we saw it coming, I was certainly, I was certainly worried, um, you know, went next door and talked to, to Bill, uh, Bill Kidder at Ledyard Bank and said, okay, Bill, we've got a big loan. And um, what do we do here? And, you know, Bill, <laughs> I'll never forget, Bill kind of looked at me across the table and he said, Jarrett, does it look like I want to own a diner? And I said, no, Bill, I don't think you want to own a diner. He said, yeah, exactly. He was like, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. He said, we're going to make sure that, uh, that this, this goes okay. I said, okay. And that made me feel a lot better. But we, you know, the, the general manager, Craig, uh, Craig Morley and I, we, we went out one, you know, again, right before everything got shut down and when we saw this thing, you know, really coming over the horizon, we went out and had a beer at, at, uh, at the bar across the street. And we said, okay, how are we going to handle this? And, um, and we decided we, we really didn't want to lay anybody off and we were going to do our best to not lay anybody off. And we didn't, we, we kept everybody on, um, which, which is an accomplishment, I think for, for restaurants, right? We, we stayed open the whole time. We didn't do any layoffs and, um, and we went into it saying, Hey, this is going to be a priority. Um, one, because we cared about the people that work there, you know, um, many of the people that work there have worked there for a long time and, um, and we have a responsibility, right. To take care of them. But then there's also the practical side of, you know, labor's always been tough in the Upper Valley. And we figured that, okay, if we lay somebody off for a couple of weeks, it's going to be really hard to get them back. So we said, this is a, this is a strategic priority for us is to, you know, stay open and not lay anybody off. Um, so we started looking for ways that we could continue to keep the business running. We could find things for, for people to do and then figure out how we were going to make it through knowing that revenue was going to fall off pretty hard right off the bat and then hopefully come back. Um, so, you know, our servers became delivery drivers and, um, you know, day one of being shut down of the pandemic, we were a delivery only business and, uh, and that actually worked pretty well. You know, we, we were able to, to keep things going. We pivoted to, uh, doing family style meals. So uh, this became a pretty big business for us during the pandemic. It's something that I wish we could keep going. We just don't have the space for it. And we're, we're trying to figure that out now. But, you know, we did these dinners to go where um, it would feed a family of four to six people. And it included, you know, an entree and a salad and a dessert. And, you know, we've got the bakery there. So you have to throw in some, some of that <laughs> of stuff. Of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we were just, we, we tried to be as entrepreneurial and as creative as we could to just keep things going. Right. And we would set goals for ourselves. Okay. We're going to try and do $2,000 a day in revenue today. And, um, you know, how are we going to get there? And then we're going to try and do 50 of these dinners to go. And how are we going to get there? And, um, all these little things just kind of kept us going and, uh, slowly things, you know, we, we were doing takeout and delivery only. And then we, we did outdoor dining. We took over a couple of parking spaces right in front of the, the restaurant there. And then we were able to open up partially inside and, ultimately, you know, again, just, just being creative and just figuring out ways to kind of make it to the next step, um, uh, is the thing, things that really helped us. Yeah. So within, um, within that, uh, and the delivery from the restaurant and all that, um, you, well, I think you, uh, as it was explained to me by somebody, uh, in, from the chamber of commerce in Hanover, um, is that you saw a problem, um, as it related to delivery services, especially during the pandemic and what they were doing their model and how it was adversely affecting restaurants. And you decided to try to do something about that. Can you tell us about Uber? Yeah. Yeah. So Uber is upper Valley eateries and retail. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you're right. We, so the third party delivery companies, um, whom I won't name, but, mm -hmm. um, there are several of them out there who do, you know, they have an app and you order your food and someone picks it up from the restaurant and delivers it to your house. 
Um, these companies are really, really bad for independent restaurants in particular mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they charge really high fees. So most restaurants are paying uh, upwards of 30 or 35% of every order. Um, it's going to these third-party wow, delivery so companies. There goes any profit. Yeah, <laughs> there, there goes two or three times your profit. Wow! So you're losing money on on every order that's going out on these these systems. Um, you don't control the customer relationship. They do. You know, you only get a first name. You don't get a phone number. You don't get an email. You don't get any of that stuff. So if something goes wrong, or you know, you, you just have no control over that relationship. You don't get any of the data, so you don't see who oh. your customers are. You can't market to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, for independent restaurants, you know, you have no bargaining power. If you're McDonald's or Chili's or, you know, one of these bigger, bigger uh, chains, mm. you have bargaining power, right? You can, you can work that rate down and you can um, negotiate different things. Lose restaurant in Hanover <laughs> doesn't, doesn't make a difference, yeah. right? So um, they, they're actually kind of pitting us against each other. And so this is a problem, you know, it was a problem for us. Um, and then, you know, in the, during the pandemic, they were adding restaurants without restaurants permission. I and, heard about that. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that's sketchy. Yeah. We'd have, least. we'd have, you know, some guy named Joe who would make 15 orders a day over the phone or over our own, you know, native uh, online ordering system mm-hmm. and coming in and paying with a credit card that had, you know, the logo of one of these third party delivery companies on it. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I was pretty pissed. <laughs> I think, uh, I think a lot of other restaurant owners were too. And so, yeah, we decided to do something about it. So me and a couple of the restaurant owners created a, uh, a consumer cooperative. So in the state of New Hampshire, um, uh, we, we couldn't actually create a restaurant cooperative, but we could create a consumer cooperative. So the consumers, the people who were actually, you know, using our service were the, were the shareholders. And, um, uh, we used a white labeled app. So there was a technology company that created this, um, you know, uh, a, uh, an online ordering system, mm-hmm. but then also a dispatch system. Oh, sure. Um, so, and, you know, and then the ordering part inside of the restaurant as well. Mm-hmm. And so we used their technology and we created this, you know, basically knockoff of what these third-party delivery companies were doing. Um, but we owned it and we ran it. We owned the data. Um, we kept our fees as low as we possibly could, probably too low. Um, and, um, you know, we tried to take really good care of our drivers and make Mm -hmm. sure that they were well compensated and, uh, we tried to do it right. Um, ultimately it, the, we kept the business going for about a year and Mm -hmm. we ended up shutting it down, um, for a host of reasons, I think, you know, labor issues and, uh, the timing was, was probably not the best. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would call it a success. I mean, we, we learned a lot. I think, uh, uh, you know, it succeeded in, in many ways, we probably didn't have the capital we needed to keep this thing going, going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think for a business to succeed, you need a good idea, you need good execution and you need enough capital. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we were okay on execution and, and we didn't have enough capital. And that just, that's the thing that really hurt us um, uh, going into it. And we, we kind of had thought that we would be able to raise more money than we were. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we, we created this co-op and it, again, it was a great experiment. It was, it was fun from an entrepreneurial standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, learned a ton and, um, I, it, I think it definitely could succeed, but again, we had a couple things that were working against us. And so ultimately we ended up shutting it down a few yeah. months ago. Now, do you think there's a space for it or space and time for it to come back and, and be something in the future? Potentially. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's a model that could work for other communities too. Mm. Um, and you know, the way that we kind of built this thing, we tried to do it as a, you know, open source project, right? We, we made our bylaws public. We put it, we put it out there so other communities can replicate it. Um, the upper Valley is tough because, um, you know, you have a couple pockets of, uh, of more dense population, but 
Uh, it's pretty spread out, as is most of New Hampshire. And then also the college, uh, Dartmouth College, has has a little bit of a weird schedule, right? So um, they take kind of long breaks. So they're gone from you know basically Thanksgiving all the way to the middle of January. Um, during the summer, there there's one class. The sophomores are there, but um, you know, it, it, we had some, some struggles there and then, and then it never really caught on at the college. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Hanover again, because a lot of the Hanover restaurants were already busy enough yeah. and, um, you know, struggling with labor. And so trying to get buy-in from some, some restaurants, um, that weren't originally on the, on the system was tough because they didn't want to do delivery at all. They, they didn't even want to do takeout because they, they were over subscribed as it was just for dine-in. Mm-hmm. Um, gotcha. so Yeah. So where do things stand today and what's your vision moving forward? So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, I would say we're recovering <laughs> still <laughs> from, from the pandemic. Mentally and physically. Yeah. And yeah. Else, and, yeah. and, and, you know, the, the labor, labor issue is something that everyone's seeing and feeling right now. Um, I think we've done better than most, you know, we're still open seven days and, um, we have most of the same staff that we went into the pandemic with, um, we could probably use a couple more people, but we're doing just fine with the crew that we have. And, and we, we do have a really, really strong, great crew. What was your key to keeping your folks? Because a lot of restaurants weren't able to. Um, <laughs> leadership, I think. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, you know, I, 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 I focused on leading myself, you know, from personally on, on leading the restaurant and not being absent. Um, you know, I'm there all the time. I, I, and I'm, I, I, I consider myself a servant leader too. You know, I'll, I'll, if the dishwasher calls out, like I'm going to do dishes, I'm not not too good for that. Um, I don't think other restaurant, you know, there are many other restaurant owners that, that absolutely will, but there are plenty that aren't willing to do that. Uh, and I think that sends a message that I'm willing to, to, you know, do what it takes. Um, we pay well, we take, take really good care of our people. We offer great benefits. Um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, just a transactional thing for us. They're, they're people and families and, mm-hmm. uh, we do our best to, to really take care of people. And I think that's gone a long way. Um, and, and, you know, that, that style, I think permeates through our, our leadership structure, you know, our, our GM Craig, who I mentioned is the same way, you know, we, we, he and I are the ones that clean the grease trap, right? Because it's, it's the, it's the, <laughs> the grossest, yeah, it's the grossest job in the, in the <laughs> restaurant, right? Cleaning that thing out. And, you know, we do it because it sends a message that we're willing to do, you know, the dirtiest job and we're not too good for it. So um, I think just taking care of people, making sure they're paid well, offering great benefits and 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 leading are the most important things uh, in terms of maintaining our staff. And then I interrupted you as you're yeah. asking my last question. So you were talking about where things stood now. Sure. What's the vision moving forward? So I think, uh, you know, one of the best things that came out of the pandemic is outdoor dining. Yeah. Um, you know, we never, it, it wasn't even a thought for us, right? We, we just never thought the town of Hanover would ever go for us taking a couple parking spots, which are like the most coveted thing in Hanover <laughs> yeah. is parking yep. um, to, to put some tables out there. And the, the pandemic certainly opened that up and it was something that everybody realized like, this is great. And so uh, with that, we gained about 40% more seats and 0% more kitchen. <laughs> oh, there's that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, we've, you know, it, it's been a bit of a, a challenge for us, right? We're, we're operating at a hundred percent capacity of our kitchen, cooking as fast as we possibly can. And we still have open tables. So um, we're looking at ways right now to do some renovations inside the kitchen to uh, increase our capacity, to be able to cook more food. 
Um, we recently moved our bakery down at the basement next door. So we were able to take over some space next door, um, which opens up space in our kitchen, um, makes the ba- bakery a lot nicer and more efficient. And so at this point, we're just focusing on capacity building and, uh, you know, again, some of that kind of behind the curtain stuff mm. to make us a better business. Um, as we get to the point where we can serve more guests, um, I'm, you know, really curious about doing wholesale and retail. Uh, not only from the bakery side, but also from the just the breakfast food side. I think there's a lot of opportunity there to uh, offer some really great things that you know, and and use the brand that we have. There's you know, fifty thousand Dartmouth alums, and um, there's there's hundreds of thousands of people who have come through Hanover and experienced Lou's and uh, and have an affinity for the brand. And I think we can really capitalize on that. And so. Uh, you know, the idea of opening up another restaurant is probably not really in the cards for me, <laughs> but the, the idea of taking this brand that we've established and, and being able to use it outside of our walls, I think is really interesting. Awesome. And you had brought up uh, the concept of servant leadership. Yeah. And how do you apply that outside the walls of Lou's? Community outreach seems to be an important um, part of uh, what you're doing. Can you talk about what that looks like? What is that community outreach and why do you do it? Yeah, so um, I think it's one of these things that uh, it doesn't have an immediate return on investment, mm-hmm. um, but it has a long-term kind of return. And not only in money, but just in you know feeling good about what you're doing and how you're spending your time. And so um, I do try and spend as much time as I can uh, you know, volunteering and you know, I'm on the planning board for Hanover and, and I try and participate in a lot of Hanover's, um, you know, master planning committee and, and all this kind of stuff to, uh, to make Hanover a better place to live. Um, I, I was on the, uh, the board of a, a nonprofit at the VA for a long time called Varan, um, and really enjoyed, uh, working with, uh, the VA hospital system and, and this nonprofit that was, it was, it was associated with, um, and yeah, I think again, you, you have to think long-term and big picture about stuff like that because the, the immediate ROI is, is may, may not be present, but it's important to invest in your community. Absolutely is. So Jarrett, thank you for your servant leadership. Thank you for your military time, um, serving our country and thanks for serving the folks of Hanover and around. So thank it's you. been great to have you. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. And now the buzz. Well, it's that time of year. Let your freak flag fly high. It is Halloween, my high holy day. And so, Nathan. Yes, sir. I'm not the only one that's a big Halloween fan. Americans are expected to spend an all-time high this year. $10.14 billion on Halloween. On Halloween. Oh, my God. Although, as the parent of two children who wanted to buy costumes like a month and a half ago at the costume store. I'm not surprised with the price of things. Oh, yes. I mean, it's amazing how much you can easily drop. I mean, when we moved, I I finally realized how many Halloween decorations we had. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, once you're into Halloween, (laughs) you just you don't hold back. Yep. Yep. I, um, I walked down the street the other day and our neighbor has a giant skeleton and a giant werewolf out already. I'm like, oh man, in September here when we're recording, of course. But um, there's some really cool numbers. It was the National Retail Federation that uh, put some numbers together. Yes. And um, let's go through these because these are a lot of fun, actually. So what do we got? 
Well, 65% of Americans intend to celebrate Halloween or participate in Halloween activities this year, up from 58% Excellent. from 2020, which is, I mean, not a surprise. The, the right. pandemic's over. We're finally, you know, going out. So, you know, expect those candy sales to go on the rise mm-hmm. here. So we got about 66% of consumers say that they plan to celebrate, including handing out candy, decorating their home or yard. About just over half of those folks said they're going to decorate their home or yard, dressing in costume just under half, carving a pumpkin, you know, about 44%, um, hosting a party, 25%, hosting or attending a party, I guess. Um, So interesting. And Americans were going to expect to spend $3.17 billion on decorations alone. Oh, my God. Decorations just, alone. Just decorations of, you know, for a few weeks We're of the year. We're getting spooky this year, people. We are getting real. These numbers are getting real spooky. So um, what's interesting to me is they give some stats about um, dressing up and, you know, the numbers and whatnot. Um, pet costumes remain high with one in five intending to dress their pet for Halloween oh, this year. no, people don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Younger adults are more likely to dress their pets in costume. Not really sure why. <laughs> but... How's this one? You ready for this? Yep. Not a surprise, as a father of a six-year-old, 1.8 million children plan to dress as Spider-Man. Of course they are. (laughs) Of course they are. That's an easy one. And more than 4.6 million adults plan to dress like a witch. (laughs) Not exactly creative, but okay. I know, right? Oh, my God. put a spell on you. Um, the most popular costumes for pet lovers, though, include a pumpkin, 10%. So they dress up, they're... Their pet is a pumpkin. 5% is a hot dog, um, a superhero or a cat at 4%, and a bumblebee at 3%. And that's what we're buzzing about this week. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.